What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The Hale Varsity Radio Saturday Morning Show, presented by the Nebraska Lottery. Strap yourselves in. Here are your hosts, Chris Schmidt. Y'all don't even know he was a virgin until he was 28, and now, roll tide. And Mark Cranach. Time has come for someone to put his foot down. And that foot is me. Welcome to it on a Saturday morning. This isn't Mark Cranach or Chris Schmidt. It's Damon Barr. And get ready for a best of Hale Varsity Saturday morning. Chris is out on the baseball diamond, or at least he's socially distant watching from his car. But anyway, we have a great show lined up for you today. In the 8 o'clock hour, we're going to kick things off with Mississippi State head coach Mike Leach, who's on earlier this week. And then Colorado Hall of Fame coach during the Big Eight days, Bill McCartney, is going to come on after the Pirate. And then we have a special treat, the first annual, and I think the last annual, Hale Varsity Spelling Bee, Brandon Vogel versus Clausburn. That'll be a good one. And we're going to round out the show with Olympic champion wrestler out of UNL, Jordan Burroughs. But to start this hour off, we are going to have director of player development for the Nebraska Cornhusker football team, Ron Brown. Back to it, Hale Varsity Radio, presented by the Nebraska Lottery. And uh, let's welcome in a longtime coach at Nebraska and director of player development at Nebraska, Ron Brown, back with us. Coach, how you doing? Good, Smitty. How you doing, man? I'm doing all right. Thanks for a few minutes. I wanted to run you down today and just chat about a few things and kind of take me through uh, this weekend for you. And, and before we, we talk Saturday's sermon at the Capitol, how have you been processing, dealing, and, and, and kind of coping with the last three weeks in this country? Well, uh, of course, there's a lot of sadness and there's grief, and but uh, also, Schmitty, there's, um, you know, I have uh, a profound faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, I've experienced uh, a number of things all the way back when I was growing up in the 60s. Uh, there's a lot of things that are similar. I don't think life is a mountaintop where we've kind of made it to the top and now we're going to uh, be all excited about it. I think we're a mer- we're on a merry-go-round and it's a merry-go-round of sin and it, it passes from one phase to the next. You think you've arrived, but you haven't arrived. It's, it's sin just being spilled out across uh, planet Earth and so I just feel like here in America we've um, you know, we've overall we've uh, decided that we want less of the Lord and more of ourselves, and we're seeing the uh, the results of that. Ron Brown is with us, Coach. Ed, if if you can, can you share what your message was Saturday? It was the gospel message of Jesus Christ that um, you know God uh, created the heavens and the earth. Uh, he created man. Uh, man sinned. Uh, God uh, had a plan for that man, uh, all mankind, and that was uh, to send his only son, Jesus Christ, God the Son, who would die on a cross uh, to pay the penalty of sin and then rise from the dead to proving that he was God in, in, in an amazing resurrection. 
and then he offers um, the new life of Christ right back to every man. So the question is, what is our response? Do we trust Jesus Christ for eternal life as our Savior and walk away from the sin which so easily besets us? Or do we reject it? And each man gets a chance to make that decision. So the reason why, Schmitty, I spoke at the Capitol Tyron Williams, former player uh, for me, had asked me to uh, speak, and I told him I think the most compassionate thing that I could possibly do to everyone who comes is to um, remind them of this incredible gift of uh, of new life that Christ offers. And I didn't I didn't come to align with any group. Uh, I came to just represent the Lord Jesus Christ as a citizen of heaven, and uh, and as a citizen of America. Ron Brown is with us on Hale Varsity. Coach, uh, you have uh, unique challenges every day with your role as director of Nebraska player development. That's kids getting to campus for the first time. That's kids that have been in it as a student athlete for a number of years. And you've served uh, a number of years at Nebraska as a coach and now as a player development uh, in charge of that. How do you approach the the world today with the the racism that exists? How do you approach the world today with COVID-19? Those are just two things that are are pretty pretty recent and prevalent right now, but just how do you go about your job daily with kids that uh, when everyone's back, obviously you're, you're there for them. Yeah. Great question, Schmidt. You know, I've, I've been actually been a part of Nebraska football for five decades now as we start 2020 here. So I've, I've, I've kind of seen a variety of things. Um, and not to say that I'm an expert on everything, but I know where to turn. And uh, I have turned to the Bible in my own life because it is the Word of God and it, it, it addresses every problem. You've mentioned uh, um, racism, uh, you've mentioned COVID, it addresses the issue of sin. And the Bible also addresses pestilence and all kinds of different things that take place on this planet. Um, I, I don't force the Bible on our players, but I allow the Word of God to shape me so that I can pour out the very love of Christ that's in me back to them, hopefully in a way that they can accept it and understand at least my love, and hopefully that will lead them to the love of Jesus Christ. So, for example, um, uh, Colossians 1 uh, verse 13 says that I've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. Man, that jacked me. Well, I've been on a rescue mission. Jesus Christ went on a rescue mission for me and every every person on the planet. I trusted Christ as saving Lord and now I trust his word. The royal law that we sometimes know as um, the royal law in the Bible says the love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And he says the second portion of the command is to love your neighbor as yourself. So, Shemitty, basically the rule is this. If you understand who God is in Christ, now you have a chance to really love your neighbor as yourself. That means your neighbor might not be just the guy who lives next door. It might be someone of a different race, someone of a different socioeconomic background or geographical location or what have you. 
So that's really the message. The, the football team here is a laboratory of love where we get to, we coaches get to pour out our love for these players that we've recruited and asked to come here to mesh as a team. You mentioned love, and, and that's a word that's not no one's fearful to, to, to use and, and follow through on uh, with Nebraska. Uh, talking with former players as often I, as I do or coaches or former coaches, I mean, that's kind of that, – that's the foundation of the program, it sounds like. It always has been here. You know, when I, when I first came here in 1987 – I really appreciated uh, Coach Osborne, and I and I love Nebraska. I love the fact that, you know, back in the '60s, Schmitty, when I was a, a, a little boy watching college football, there were there were schools that I were that I was watching. Like I remember watching the national championship game in 1969, Texas versus Arkansas, and clearly there were two, there were two schools that had said we want segregation here, and so no African American players were allowed on the field. So I remember talking to my dad about. Jim Crow and, and that whole issue. Uh, but, you know, during the 60s, if you really look back at Nebraska, I'm not saying that we were perfect, but, you know, uh, Nebraska recruited in the late 60s t- uh, two prominent black athletes, a Heisman Trophy winner and an Outland Trophy winner. So you had uh, Johnny Rogers from Omaha and you had Richard Glover from New Jersey that came to America at a time when this nation was suffering through a number of issues of racist segregation and many of the schools and college football was affected by it. But you had these two guys that were here at Nebraska who were um, being being loved and being teammates uh, and also excelling on the football field. A few more minutes. Ron Brown's with us. Hale Varsity Radio, Director of Player Development at Nebraska. We're talking life and racism and, and of course, uh, COVID-19. And, Coach, with um, with uh, the pandemic that exists, I mean, how have you been able to, to deal with that aspect of things? Uh, I know there are parameters being followed all, followed all across the the city of Lincoln, but uh, just in general, has it been a lot of distance work for you? Yeah, you know, I was like probably many people, we were on Zoom calls, and I was relating to players in a variety of different ways, Zoom calls, FaceTime, um, on the phone, and of course, uh, fellow coaches and uh, and uh, other groups, uh, uh, you know, Bible studies, uh, you know, just friendships, a variety of things. Yeah, we, we were all trying to uh, adhere to the, uh, to the standards of the land, which was mm-hmm. to keep at social distance and wearing masks and... Uh, not opening up the country yet but now that we've opened up the country a little bit we've gotten out a little bit more but yeah i mean you know right again the bible says this count it all joy when you go through various trials knowing this that the trying of your faith works endurance but let endurance have its complete work that you may be complete and entire lacking in nothing so schmitty really uh the trial of pestilence or covid or the trial of human relationships so that the, the the lack of human relationships that we see in the sin patterns that are taking place, whether it's the brutality of police or racism or or stealing or just a variety of things, all of the above, everything, through the midst of the trials, the believer in Christ gets to use those trials as an opportunity to grow in his maturity in his walk with the Lord and become more Christ-like. And I believe that's really what the world needs. It, it, it needs 
people who will, who will allow Christ to make them more Christ-like, to reach out, grieve with people, put their arms around people, love people, uh, firmly follow the truth, um, forgive folks just the way I've been forgiven by Christ. Uh, as, a, as a football team, we got a great opportunity to be around guys from a variety of different backgrounds and to pour out our love to them. That's what I love about coaching, man. I always have. And I've always loved uh, being here in Nebraska. Again, there's no place that's been perfect. Mm-hmm. We've all had our issues. And I'd have to raise my hand to say that I've had my issues as well, that uh, I haven't done everything the Lord has wanted me to do over the years. But I'm thankful for his forgiveness, his grace, and his mercy. And I'm, I'm privileged to be able to offer that and pour that out to our players. Back with you, Hale Varsity Radio, Ron Brown with us, Director of Nebraska Player Development. Coach, uh, quick thought on on development, and this is more the, the football side. When it comes to, to guys getting ready and, and ramped up, I know there's training sessions going on, and then once uh, once things get passed, you can move to, to more hands-on uh, work with players that the staff can you had a knack of really producing high-level guys. You guys did a phenomenal job recruiting during your time at Nebraska, Coach Brown. And you, specifically, when I look at your position groups, I look at the wide receivers you coached for a number of years, the tight ends you coached for a number of years, and even the, the running backs you coached. And, man, guys, young guys seemed ready to go with a, with a role that they had earned. And I'm just kind of wanting a comment from you, if I could, just from the development side about Nebraska football, just how, how it was so well done from a development size to to find kids first of all but second of all get them ready through repetition well i i believe me i I think coach osborne had a whole lot to do with it as well because coach um understood the principle that vince lombardi had always understood and that is you don't always get the best person you get the right person and when you get the right guy in the program, he, he may not always be the most talented, but he's going to develop and maximize his ability. And so maximization of your ability versus how you compare to somebody else was the mantra here at Nebraska. And I learned that very early here. And I think it's a great principle. I think that's a biblical principle as well. Uh, the other thing, Schmidt, is that we did a lot with getting repetitions to our players, all of our players. So if, you, if you're uh, number one, number two, number three player, uh, getting over 100 reps per day in a practice, I'll tell you what, they're getting ready. In 1994, we won the national championship. I mean, you look at that quarterback spot, you know, we were down to our fourth and fifth string quarterback. There's no way we should on paper have won a national championship that year. But we did because our, our QBs were ready to go. And that's true of a lot of positions. It's been true of my positions as well. The other thing that I would say is that you've got to devise as a coach opportunities for players to learn the system so well that they can actually go out in the off season when you're not allowed to coach them and, and actually go through the repetitions uh, and the drills and so forth and then be able to teach that to other younger players. 
So, for example, I would take my wide receivers and I would show them during the season when I could work with them what it meant to catch 300 balls a day on your own. That's five days a week uh, that they would do that on their own in the offseason, 1,500 catches a week. And if you had two 10-week periods of that, that amounts to 30 thousand balls per year that you would catch. And if you go through five years, Schmitty, of catching uh, balls on your own, that's 150,000 passes that you've caught outside of Nebraska practice. And think about what a player will do in in that five years. I mean, if you're 150,000 catches later, <laughs> you're going to make a lot of improvement. So we had to get our players to buy into that. And I worked very, very hard at every position. That's just one example with, with receivers. But uh, the running backs, I always felt like – you know, two is a party. You can start a party with two. <laughs> and I remember, uh, for example, uh, when Rex Burkhead had in a very infectious um, polarization for Amir Abdullah. Man, Amir Abdullah, th- these two guys came from different areas of the country. They, they came from uh, different backgrounds, but they just gravitated to one another. They loved each other, and that fed into each other, and the rest of the running backs took notes on that one, and they just followed. We had a great group of guys. We had some extremely high-working guys, high-work ethic guys. Andy Janovich was part of that group. Amani Cross was, that, was part of that group. King Frazier was part of that group. You know, there were, there were guys that, that um, uh, were, were totally bought in on Saturdays, in the off season, when there's no football, they didn't have to be here at the stadium. You can bet Burkhead and Abdullah was getting that that group of running backs over to the complex, and they were just working out on their own, going through things, going through plays. So all of that, you know, greatness is made in empty stadiums. It's only revealed in a full stadium. And so if you can get your guys, and with the help of the Lord, you can get your guys to buy into that, you're going to see a lot of maximum development, and guys will be able to hit the field earlier than normal. How many of those uh, several thousand passes were off your left arm, man? I remember watching warm-ups <laughs> where, you're, where, you're, where you're, you're just going wherever you want with the football, and the guys, it's their job to catch it. <laughs> Too many in that wide cockeyed uh, sidearm motion that I had. Uh, I mean, you wind up. Like, out of joint many times. You, huh? you said you wind up, man. I mean, you. It's oh, yeah. like you're on the mound. <laughs> hey, if they can catch my balls, they can catch anybody's balls because those balls are coming wobbly and hard. <laughs> That's pretty good. Ron Brown with us, director of player development. Coach, thanks for sharing your thoughts today. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Schmitty. Thanks for having me, buddy. Hale Varsity Radio, presented by the Nebraska Lottery, with Chris Schmidt and Mark Cranach. Back at it on a Saturday morning, Hale Varsity edition of Best of Hale Varsity. Now we've got a special treat for you. Mike Gilbert, O.J. Simpson's agent. We're going to wind back all the way to him, joining Hale Varsity with Chris Schmidt. Back in Hale Varsity Radio, presented by the Nebraska Lottery. Chris Schmidt, David Gustafson. 20 years ago this week, the O.J. Simpson saga began. Dates that uh, are seared into your memory. Maybe the Bronco chase, the trial six months later. But it all started unraveling the 12th and 13th of June, 1994. A man close with O.J. Simpson before, during, and after the incidents 
Mike Gilbert, his agent with us now on Hale Varsity Radio and uh, author of How I Helped O.J. Get Away with Murder. Mike, it's been a few years. It's nice to speak with you again. Uh, Let's start with this this anniversary and the memories it brings back for you. Oh, boy, Chris. You know, like we we did speak a few years ago, but uh, I remember the interview well. I had several at that time and throughout the, the 20 years that has passed. And and as you remember, because, you know, we've spoken other times as well, but uh, the memories for me, uh, because I was so close to it or different than probably everyone else or most people, I was in Yosemite uh, 20 years ago today. I had just finished a rock climb with my son David uh, on the Royal Arches there in Yosemite National Park. Went to bed uh, that night, woke up this morning, 20 years ago in Yosemite, and uh, decided to call my wife and let her know that I was going to stay a few extra days and, and do this rock climb, Lost Arrow Spire. And when I called home, uh, my wife picked up the phone and said, you need to get to Rockingham. Nicole's been murdered and OJ's in handcuffs. And from there, it has been a blur, uh, even to this day. Mike, you, you touched on some of the different things looking back at your book on it. Do you have any, you said it's a blur, but I mean, do you have any conversation, remembrance of that conversation of what you had with OJ following that? Oh, yeah. No, I, I remember everything. It's just that, I, to be honest with you, Chris, I never could have imagined 20 years later that we would still be going into court and still be um, going back over over what had happened back then. But uh, it was, as I like to say, it was the first reality television show you had. Uh, everyone was an actor, uh, you know, they, and they played their various parts. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, to me, though, it was more a destruction of, uh, of a legend and my childhood idol. Uh, as you well know, he was somebody that I had idolized from the time I was a young kid. And uh, to see that unravel uh, was, was difficult, especially being on the inside of that. O.J. Simpson's agent Mike Gilbert with us, Hale Varsity Radio, 20-year anniversary of the murders and the fall of, you know, one of the greats in the NFL and uh, the upheaval uh, for several families involved. Mike, I want to go back. How did you get involved, not only from an agent standpoint, but get involved with two greats from SC, O.J. Simpson and Marcus Allen? How, how did you get uh, a part of this inner circle? Uh, I used to think it was I was one of the very lucky people that – had realized a dream of growing up I was always active in sports and, and I was always an SC fan uh, in fact the second bet I ever made in my life was on USC against Ohio State in the Rose Bowl uh, which SC had lost and, and I thought one day I'm going to meet OJ Simpson and I'm going to get that 25 cent bet back from him because they lost and I bet because of him and uh, through Marcus Allen, I met Marcus uh, uh, and started managing Marcus. And uh, he actually had OJ call me from OJ's place in New York City. 
I, I thought it was Marcus playing a joke on me, so I used some foul language as it was pretty late at night, uh, but kind of in a funny way. And, I, and uh, then I heard Marcus, Mike, I'm here, this is Marcus, but you're talking to OJ. And so I was thoroughly embarrassed and thought, well, I don't think I'll ever represent that guy. And I flew out, met with him the next day. We uh, discussed what was important, which was his image and, uh, you know, not breaking promises to his fans and so forth. So I had him from that day on until, uh, you know, throughout, you know, the trial. And, and uh, you know, probably a question that maybe you're, you're going to ask her about, but a lot of people do. They, they want to know why I stayed. Why is it money? And it wasn't. I stayed knowing I was losing money because I was losing a lot of other athletes and a lot of corporate sponsors. But I just felt that I couldn't leave working for him when I had always known him to be just a great human being and very good to his fans and his friends and family. Uh, So that's why I stayed. Uh, Looking back, of course, uh, it was a mistake because the choice that I made not only affected me, but it affected my family. Mike, when you look back on your conversations with OJ after the, the, the happening and the murders happened, what do you remember some of the parts of that conversation you had leading up to that trial? You know, probably uh, the one that stands out the most was not, uh, it wasn't immediately after the murders because OJ was in just such a fog and, and days and so forth. Uh, it was after the Bronco chase. Uh, when I went to see him in jail, uh, he had been in jail just a couple of days. And I remember he never denied you know, killing Nicole, uh, and he couldn't make eye contact with me. And I remember what stood out to me was uh, the, the cut on his knuckle on his left hand. And envisioning how did he get it and I could tell that wasn't from a broken glass and, and uh, uh, at that point it was just you know, yeah, I love you OJ and you know, I'm here and whatever you need me to do I'll do but it was it, it was um, it was like the shine had come off he didn't have that aura that he had always maintained uh, throughout his uh, lifetime Mike Gilbert with us, Hale Varsity Radio, and he has represented O.J. Simpson for a number of years. And uh, his book out in 2008, How I Helped O.J. Get Away with Murder. Several theories and not much debate on, on the result of June 12th. What's your theory on what went down that night? Well, you know, first of all, let me, if I may, I want to address the title of my book. That was changed by my publisher. That was by no way the title that I wanted. But the reason it came to uh, to that title was because I sat with my publisher and I said, you know, the murders happened June 12th. However, those murders began years before uh, with the verbal abuse and things that a lot of us weren't made aware of uh, because, you know, there's things that you don't know about your friends that they keep hidden. And I was aware of the one domestic violence call. But, you know, looking back at that, everyone helped OJ get away with murder, uh, including Nicole's family, uh, because, you know, they would send Nicole back into the situation. Her friends would send her back uh, because, hey, it's OJ. My gosh, that's OJ Simpson. 
so a lot of people help get to that point. Uh, and that's the unfortunate thing is that uh, I look back and to this day I've never had uh, the strength to go to Nicole's grave because I should have given her a voice even though he was my client and he was my friend. Uh, I never asked. You know, I, I, I never asked if, if she was okay or what was going on. And that's why I don't think that I deserve to go to, uh, to her grave. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people, uh, I didn't know a lot of the details that other people did. And, and so a lot of people were involved in what happened that night just through looking the other way. One of the most famous portions of that trial was when they brought the glove out. What was going through your mind when you were watching that unfold with the the situation with the glove in the the O.J. Simpson trial? You know, Chris, oddly enough, uh, O.J. and I discussed the glove, and that's one of the uh, elements that uh, my publisher wanted to change the title of the book because I wasn't worried about the glove fitting or not fitting because, in my opinion, the expert had flown out, measured OJ's hands, said these are the exact size of gloves that he would wear. And as you know, being from Nebraska, you know how cold it is. And some people like very tight fitting gloves, some people like loose fitting gloves and so forth. So that was never, a, uh, to me, it was never an issue if they fit or not. But sitting with OJ, uh, he said, Mike, I'm not gonna put the gloves on. Because, you know, those gloves have Nicole's blood, and they held the knife that killed Nicole. So I, I'm not going to do it. And I said, OJ, either way you're putting them on. If it's the prosecution, which, of course, we preferred, or we're going to put the gloves on you, but you're going to have to put them on. And I'm not concerned with whether or not they fit or not. Because you know, if that's your concern, just don't take your arthritis medicine. And he looked at me and said, Mike, my hands would hurt like hell. And I said, why would they hurt? And he paused and they, because they, my knuckles swell up and I can't close my hands. And I said, you know, I just kind of looked at him and you could see the light come on. That, you know, if you're worried about it, then just don't take your arthritis medicine, which is what he did. However, the gloves fitting or not fitting, Chris, when they went to put those on, it didn't matter to us if they fit they slid right on it was of course the gloves fit my gosh the expert said that and oj simpson has lost 23 pounds since he's been in jail and we would have then looked at the jurors and said if you lost 23 pounds i bet you could wear some clothes you haven't put on quite a few years so we really didn't care if they fit or not Uh, you know people really think that it was a big deal but we just wanted Christopher Darden or Marsha Clark to put the gloves on where it was their evidence. By them doing that, they're saying these gloves are going to fit. And they made a big deal out of it. And Johnny Cochran encoded Christopher Darden, and eventually Chris came out and said that they wanted the gloves to go on uh, OJ. And, and, uh, and so they, you know, OJ had a, a chance to testify without being cross-examined. If you remember when he put the glove on, he said, they don't fit, it doesn't fit. And they didn't get to cross-examine him. And so uh, Marsha was very upset because she had told Dart not to put the gloves on. OJ and he and he did and the rest is you know just kind of like folklore with Johnny Cochran if it doesn't fit you must have quit 
Mike Gilbert with us, Hale Varsity Radio, represented O.J. Simpson uh, as his agent for a number of years. And, Mike, O.J.'s acquitted, and then the civil trial comes out. He's found liable for $30 million plus to, to the families. But O.J., for a time, is not doing time. And, and then... The, the kidnapping, the armed robbery, the Vegas situation, an incident happened. Were you still with O.J. at that time? Uh, I was during the civil trial, and, 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 and Chris, my feeling all along, it was very simple. The verdict in L.A., I believe every verdict has been correct thus far. When the criminal verdict, when you're finding some of the blood evidence, that uh, had blood preservative in it and that was in photographs in July, but they weren't in the police photographs taken uh, June 13th, not 20 years ago today. They show pictures of the gate, no blood. Three weeks later or so, there is blood, and that blood had preservative, and then there's, of course, the missing blood from the vial that O.J. had given uh, at Parker Center. So because of those elements, uh, the jumping of the fence, uh, we're going to save O.J. Uh, when none of the officers, all three detectives, none of them could remember why they went there. Uh, and my question to Johnny was, which he brought up at trial, if you just saw two people murdered, when you got there and you jumped the fence, you were doing it to save his life. He went to notify the ex-husband that his former wife had been murdered. He wasn't a suspect, and they all said he wasn't. Uh, so they said they went to save his life. My question was, did you draw your weapons? None of them drew their weapons. Did you call for backup? Because, of course, you don't know how many murderers there might be. They didn't call for backup. They didn't call for helicopters to illuminate the neighborhood where they don't know if these people, uh, his estate was very large, he'd be an OJ. So they didn't know. Were people going over the back fence? They didn't have any backup, helicopters, SWAT. They didn't draw their weapons. They didn't pull their shotguns out. So... That to the jury, you could see the jurors when each officer testified to that, that they absolutely didn't believe it. Now, I don't think any of the jurors would have said that O.J. Simpson was absolutely not guilty, but where does the lying and planning of evidence start? Where does it stop? And as Johnny Cochran had explained to me, he said, Mike, if you have a big pot of spaghetti, and you're cooking it, and you have 20 family members, and they're all hungry, and they're ready to eat. You have a bunch of friends over, and you look down, and there's a roach in your spaghetti. Now, you might, when you look at all those people, think, well, maybe just one dropped in from a cupboard or something. You throw it out. You throw that one roach out. But as you start stirring it, you're finding more and more roaches. At what point do you finally throw the entire pot of spaghetti out and order pizza? And he said, the same thing with a verdict. When do you say, uh, you know, what's real and what isn't? You know, the, the blood drops, the cut on the knuckle, of course. Later, he, after, well, after the trial, he admitted that he, in fact, had done it. Uh, before, he had only alluded that, uh, uh, even before the trial began, he said, you know, I, I look at the DNA evidence, and this was a pre-trial when we had Judge Kennedy. He said, you know, Mike, I look at the, I look at the blood evidence, I see the blood drops that cut on my hand, 
and I believe in this science, so I know I had to have done it. But if I did it, wouldn't I remember? And he was crying. This was before he had been bound over, and he was just crying because he he couldn't remember if he had done it or not. And I do believe that was true at that stage. I, I don't think he really did remember that he had done it because I know him, and and that was very that was sincere. That was probably one of the most sincere times I'd ever been around OJ. Mike, take us through the situation then in the, in, in, in the uh, Las Vegas hotel room. In Las Vegas, uh, I had already uh, stopped working for OJ, and a lot of that was uh, just based on I stayed with him during the trials in L.A., the uh, criminal trial, the civil trial, and, of course, uh, child custody, because I felt that, that that was the right thing to do. However... I based my opinions after it was it was after uh, like I told him the night that he was acquitted I said OJ you don't owe me anything all you owe me is what you owe everybody else that supported you to be a, live a good life be a good example be a good dad be a good friend good member of society go back and be the person that I always knew you to be and he gave me a hug and he said I will now that was the night he got out of jail so that's all I wanted from him. And yet he ended up, once he got to Miami, he started acting like he was a 24-year-old rookie in the NFL with the strip clubs. And it was mainly the way that I saw him treating uh, his daughter, uh, you know, Sydney, and some of the things that he would say to her. And at that point, I had had enough, and, and I, just, uh, I just couldn't work for him any longer. And I flew to Miami and I told him that I was finished and I told him exactly why. So when Vegas happened, I was no longer his agent, but I still had possession of a lot of his personal items in my storage unit in Hanford, uh, California. And what had happened, uh, the guy who worked for me had stolen the items mm. and had been selling them, which we found out much later, had been selling them for 10 months. And uh, he made the mistake of calling somebody that called uh, Tom Riccio and to see if he wanted to buy him because he had, I think, sold the Anna Nicole Smith Diaries or something. And, uh, and so Riccio had a connection uh, to OJ, which was through me. He had the number, and he so he had called, didn't call me, he called OJ to see if OJ wanted to buy this stuff because if not, he was going to. And at that point, OJ thought that it was me selling his items, his personal items, uh, and it upset him. You know, and he said, Mike Gilbert has that stuff. I can't believe he's selling my stuff. So it went on for, I think, 10 months or so that, that he was trying to get that back. So Tom set it up where OJ, when he was just in town, he would call uh, this Bruce Ruan guy and, uh, and have him bring this up to a hotel like Tom was gonna buy it and OJ would just get what was his. That was the entire plan. Now, when he went in, everything was actually legal. His attorney, uh, Yel Galantra, was out there with him and told him, go get the stuff, just don't rough anybody up, that's your stuff. Problem is, elements of the crime. When he went in and he asked, first thing he did was, where's Mike Gilbert? And Vermont said I wasn't there. Well, he still thought I was in an adjoining room or something, but he was pissed, which I would have been very upset as well. 
However, when OJ said, no one leaves this room until we sort out what's my stuff. And that is, in theory, kidnapping. Hmm. Uh, would you or I have been charged with it if we were in Vegas? No. But, you know, you had the cops when they even came in much later. They didn't realize they were being uh, recorded. And they said, L.A. couldn't get this. And they said the N-word. But we got them. We got them. And they went on how stupid O.J. was and so forth. So people believe, and I believe, even though I did testify against O.J. at that trial, uh, and, and as I felt, you know, because people said, how could you testify against somebody that you loved and admired for so long? And it, it was, I didn't testify really against them. I, I testified just to the truth of what the facts were. So um, would anybody else have been charged, convicted? Uh, truthfully, I don't believe, I don't believe they would have uh, because the guys that went in with guns were given probation and he's given nine and a half to 33 years. Uh, so uh, one of the TV stations in Las Vegas did a, a very large survey to find out what people thought. And, and Clark County came out over 80% believed that he was convicted for what he had done in LA and what they feel he got away with. Well, that's probably true. However, that's not how our system is supposed to work. Mike Gilbert with us, Hale Varsity Radio, former agent with O.J. Simpson. Mike, is O.J. in good health? Is he in poor health? What do you believe is his current state? Uh, the last time I saw him, uh, Chris, he didn't, uh, he didn't look real good. He had bloated uh, uh, almost. If he would not have been in jail, I would have thought he'd become an alcoholic because, you know, his face was very swollen. Uh, had put on a lot of weight, uh, but he still had, you know, the spark in his eye when I saw him uh, at the uh, uh, hearing uh, last May, so just over a year ago. But he just, uh, he's starting to show his age. And, um, you know, the, uh, the appeal, of course, was denied, which, of course, shocked even a lot of the people that were against OJ, they were they were surprised that out of 21 elements that not one was proven when uh, uh, people that hated OJ, a lot of them, they came to me later and said, you know, I, I hate the guy and, and he should have been doing life in prison in California, but this should have been overturned. So uh, it still has a shot. It's, uh, it, it, the problem was the, the current DA in Los Angeles or in Clark County his wife was the judge, uh, judge uh, that heard the trial in Las Vegas. So the current DA's wife was the prosecutor, was the uh, judge when OJ was found guilty. Mike Gilbert Mike. with his Sale Varsity Radio. Go ahead, Gus. Mike, I was just going to say, as you look back, is there anything that you wish you would have done differently? Oh God, Gus, yes. Oh. Uh, like I said uh, a few minutes ago, looking back, I I made decisions not based on finances. I, I, I based them on on loyalty. And um, however, when I made those decisions, those decisions, which I didn't realize at the time, had a very adverse effect on a lot of the people in my life. Uh, 
uh, my wife began uh, uh, drinking. I began, I began receiving hate mail, death threats, white supremacist, neo-Nazis. You name it, I got it. Uh, people were giving out all of my various phone numbers and and the stress of that for my wife and then my young kids uh, hearing messages, we're going to we're going to kill your kids and leave them on your doorstep like Ron and Nicole. What that did to my family um, can't be repaired. And that was my decision. And I guess the hardest thing, uh, Gus, that I look at is Fred Goldman and his family, they can put a face to the devil, the person that ruined or destroyed their lives. And that face is O.J. Simpson. That is their... That is their demon. But I can't put OJ's face on it because I made the decision I chose. So I can't blame OJ. So when I look at who destroyed my life and the, and the lives of my family, it was me. And perhaps I deserved it, but my family didn't. Uh, and that is a regret that 20 years later probably burns deeper with every year. Uh, because I see the aftermath, uh, and nothing, nothing can, can ever change that. Well, thank you for asking. That's an amazing question. Thank you. Former agent with OJ Simpson, Mike Gilbert, with us. Mike, it's it's um, nice to speak with you again. Thanks for bearing your soul and your experiences with us. And uh, if we are out your direction for the Fresno, Nebraska game, we will for sure try and look you up. But thanks for your time and taking us through the last 20 years. Well, and uh, guys, uh, you know, go Huskers. And and if you even if you don't make it out, maybe give me a call and and, uh, we can uh, do a show just comparing Fresno State and Nebraska. And uh, and one last thing. Go Trojans. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I have to throw that it's out. It's all right. There. You're an SC guy through and through. Mike Gilbert with us on Hale Varsity. Mike, take care and thank you. Nice being with you guys again. Thank you. The Hale Varsity Radio Saturday Morning Show, presented by the Nebraska Lottery. Strap yourselves in. Here are your hosts, Chris Schmidt. Y'all don't even know he was a virgin until he's 28, and now, roll time. Mark Cranach. Time has come for someone to put his foot down. And that foot is me. Welcome back on a Hail Varsity Best of Edition on a Saturday morning. If you've not been with us, we had Ron Brown and O.J. Simpson's agent Mike Gilbert on last hour. Coming up in about 20 minutes, we're going to have Colorado Hall of Fame football coach Bill McCartney, followed that by the first ever and I think the last ever annual Hale Varsity Spelling Bee, Brandon Vogel versus Clausburn. You're not going to want to miss that one. And then we're going to round out the hour with Olympic champion wrestler Jordan Burroughs. But without further ado, we're going to take it over to the pirate Mike Leach. Back into it, hour two at Hale Varsity Radio, presented by the Nebraska Lottery. We say hi to the coach at Mississippi State, Mike Leach. Coach, how uh, how's it been for you here the, the last couple of weeks? And uh, it's great to get caught up with you again. Thanks for your time today. Well, I appreciate it. It's great to be on again. And, of course, it's been a funny year. And, um, you know, and it hasn't been business as usual. But uh, hopefully everybody's making the most of their time. I wanted to ask you, what have you been able to do? 
with your team from just a leadership standpoint with all the social unrest that's been going on around the country? How have you been able to communicate and, and lead with your guys? Well, that's, you know, that, and that's always hard when you can't talk to them face to face. I think that's the most difficult thing because, you know, I think, um, one of the most important deals is everybody wants to be heard. Everybody, I think, wants the same thing. And, um, you know, as far as everybody to be um, treated equally. And then, um, um, you know, and, and I think everybody wants to be heard. And I think that's, uh, you know, really kind of one of the biggest keys to racial harmony. But um, <laughs> with this business where nobody can talk to anybody except for, um, on the computer, you know, in our case, we can't meet with our players. We can't communicate with our players just on the computer. Um, you know, it makes it tough because there's a, it's a whole different, uh, level of communication when you're face to face one-on-one with, uh, everybody. But you know, they, uh, uh, they, we've had a variety of things. We've had several, like I say, the meetings on the computers where we talk to our players, they express their feelings and, and uh, not just in smaller groups, but in, in, uh, in the team overall. Then there was a, a march in uh, Starkville that, uh, you know, the, those that wanted to participated in that. And then, so there's been a variety of things. And then we've had um, a number of counselors and people on campus, um, you know, talking with our players and our yeah, and coaches, you know, and, uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, everybody's got to communicate, I think. Mike Leach with us, Hale Varsity Radio. When it comes to, to getting back to action and in, in, in football <laughs> on the field, uh, you guys are a lot like Nebraska. You, you, Nebraska just got two spring practices. Did you even get a spring practice? No, we didn't get any. We, we had kind of one of the earlier spring breaks. Well, you know, we were scheduled to start spring practice mm-hmm. right after spring break. But then uh, during that spring break, and that was the very week, where they said, all right, uh, you know, stay out another week, don't come on campus. And then, you know, then they kept uh, moving the finish line. And, uh, yeah, that's the toughest thing about this is, uh, and it doesn't matter what side of the coin you're on, Mm -hmm. that anybody's on, you know, everybody says, follow the science. Well, the science has changed its mind no less than 10 times. So there's been a lot of stop and start, you know. So I think that uh, uh, everybody will be excited once, uh, you know, we're able to go. How about getting guys up to speed? Do you like the, the NCAA? ruling where it's going to be kind of a, an NFL mini camp type opportunity where you can work with kids and how do you go about getting guys up to speed you've got younger guys you've got older guys but for you this is all new guys well I think that it's tough if you know it's tougher for a new staff but I also think that you know the NCAA kind of did what they what they could with the time that they had mm-hmm. you know I think that I don't really have a better solution. And, of course, they're deferring to the experts on the thing. So we'll have to just make sure that we utilize the time we have as well as we possibly can. Mike Leach is with us, Sale Varsity Radio. Coach, uh, I was doing a little research, and, and I need to hear about the Mike Leach rollerblade phase. Oh, I well, I would like to still be in it. Um, I would like to still be in it. The biggest thing, because it's great exercise, which is fantastic exercise, 
and um, and I'm going to have to tell you the, the most important thing to the rollerblade phase is finding a good surface to rollerblade on and um, you know like uh, bike trails are pretty good and, and things like that and, and really it's just the discipline of going down there to do it and the other great thing about rollerblading it works your abs really good they say there can be a high incidence of uh, hernia issue with it but uh, I always liked it and I need to get back to it I got two sets of rollerblades uh, that work perfectly well if uh providing I put them on and make them go. And um, and I need to get back to it because it was great exercise and everybody needs exercise, particularly me. <laughs> when, when did the roller blaze, roller blade phase begin and were you able to stay stay upright? I mean, at least avoid, oh, yeah. av- avoid the you bumps know, and bruises. I was actually pretty good at I mean, not some do a flip or tricks or anything, but... Um, um, you know, I grew up skiing and that type of thing and could ice skate. So it really, it didn't take too long. Um, you know, uh, but I'll tell you, it's uh, concrete's a, a different surface than ice, for example. Like ice, uh, you know, ice, you hit it and then, you know, you go whizzing along the surface without uh, tumbling and getting hung up, you know. Um no, I uh, and I uh, like uh, you know some of these guys will not wear the pads. I don't fully understand that. I'm gonna wear the pads, mm. um, especially the knee pads and the hand pads. But uh, and yeah, you know I don't go down very often. But when I when I have gone down, I was sure glad I had those suckers on. That's uh, the and, w- way to be. <laughs> well, because what'll happen? What it does is. You know, because the, the, the knee pads and the hand pads are kind of hard surfaced. And so then when you hit the asphalt or concrete, it'll shoot you along it kind of like you would on ice naturally. And, um, but, uh, no, my deal was, uh, you know, the thing was, I went to, uh, for a while, it was like anytime I went out, I wanted to go six miles. And I always felt like, Six miles on rollerblades equaled approximately three miles running, uh-huh. except for I felt like you got better ab work with the rollerblades. Mike Leach with us, Hale Varsity Radio. So, Coach, I, I saw this. Folks can get a personal message from you. How does that work? Uh, there's a site. A guy told me about this, and uh, I hadn't thought much about it. Oh, I hadn't thought much about it, and um, uh, the uh, I, I got a guy. I got a guy doing some work here, and he does a great job. This guy, I mean, he knows something about everything, but can fix anything and everything. But um, uh, oh no, okay. So okay, uh, a guy who's kind of a computer whiz told me about this uh, this cameo thing, and so then I saw it and thought, well, what the heck. You know, good way to stay in touch with the fans, that type of thing. And um, uh, anyway, it's worked out, you know, so far so good. Uh, I think everybody ought to go on Cameo and um, and take a look. And, um, you know, you see somebody you like, they'll shout out to you for a birthday or Father's Day or just for the heck of it, you know. So who would you want a Cameo from? I would want one from... Uh, from Daniel Boone 
Winston Churchill, Geronimo, uh, Blackbeard, um, but trouble is you got Joel, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. Um, the trouble is you have to do current people. Anyone? So cur- any, anybody current? Uh, shit, I don't know. Um, you know, I admire a lot of people. Um, Golly, I haven't given it much thought. Um, I'll tell you who I really liked. I talked to him on the phone once or twice and I met his dad a couple times. I was a big Don Mattingly guy. I really liked uh, Don Mattingly when I was going to law school. Big time and, first baseman, man. He was great. Donnie Baseball. And, yeah, and, and I think we're about the same age, actually. Well, he's preoccupied playing in the major leagues. I was... Uh, uh, going to law school, you know, mm-hmm. and um, so uh, that was the thing there, and uh, uh, so so yeah, so I was preoccupied going to law school, but I think we're about the same age. And then it was funny because I met his dad. You know, I'd go to Southern Indiana because the, there was a Wildcat Club there <laughs> in Southern Indiana. Hang on one sec. It was that board right there. That one right there was down. Maybe they just wedged it back in there. That one right there, you see? What do you, what do you got going on in the house? Uh, just getting some boards. It was that one right there, right that your hands on. Oh, there it is. Yeah, so they just stuffed it up there. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so everybody got to, got to be involved in home repairs on this. So this will be one for the ages. But, um, no, because um, so I was at the University of Kentucky at the time. And sometimes they'd let send me to speak at these things. And so uh, Southern Indiana, I went and spoke at the Wildcat Luncheon in Ev- Evansville. Mm-hmm. Well, and so then there's a guy who just looked like an older version, but looked exactly like Don Mattingly, you see. And so anyway, I met him, talked to him and all that. And, and of course, everybody's fascinated by something that you're not, they, that they're not doing. So... Of course, I was interested in baseball, and then uh, Mr. Mattingly was uh, the dad was interested in football, and, and you know had a good conversation and all that. Because everybody's a fan of somebody, you know, and I find that that sometimes you'll run across somebody famous that watches our games or something like that, and you know you're kind of embarrassed at times that you don't know a ton about what they're doing, uh, but they know a great deal about. Uh, you know, maybe some of our games or something like that. No, he'd be one of them, though, for sure. couple minutes left. Mike Leach with us, Hale Varsity Radio, head coach at Mississippi State. Coach, did you see on Twitter yesterday somebody got real busy superimposing coaches of the SEC and other conferences on, on, uh, on females? Yeah, oh, yeah, I saw that. What did uh, you, th- you think of your portrait? Well, some of them are trying to dress their guys up uh, a little more than I am. And, and, and to be perfectly honest, some of them look sluttier than others. Um, uh, you know, I still had uh, very much a mas- uh, masculine quality, so I did appreciate that part of my uh, of my uh, caricature of uh, that. Well, so you're telling me you would you wouldn't dress as conservatively. Um, well, I'd probably dress like I do now, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> and I, I, would, I would probably dress as, uh, like I do now, but I, I, I'd be lying if I didn't see my sisters a little bit in, uh, sure. 
And uh, <laughs> that picture of me when they turned me into a woman, you know. <laughs> so I got to ask, uh, there has been a coyote problem in South Lincoln near my neighborhood, near the great area of Holmes Lake and animal controls on it. They're great folks and they do a, a wonderful job. But it's been coyote sightings uh, all over the, the south and southeast part of Lincoln. I got to ask you, have you ever messed with a, uh, a coyote? Or have you ever had any interaction with a coyote? Yeah, I have. Uh, they won't let you get close to them. Um, you know, the problem is, is uh, you know, everything depends what you're trying to preserve, like quail yeah. or uh, or something like that. Um, usually, <clears throat> usually rabbits, you got too many of those anyway. Uh, chickens, chickens can be a problem. Uh, kittens or small dogs can be a problem because uh, coyotes will just uh, make a meal out of them for sure. Uh, they'll eat anything. Um, <clears throat> once in a great while, I used to see them, um, yeah, you know, be in the middle of the night, like when I was walking or something. But you'd see them glide through like a ghost. Uh, you know, in somebody's front yard or something, you know, because, see, we were on kind of on top of a hill, the end of a sort of a deal that they were kind of still building. So we were kind of like the last three houses. And so, um, you know, it wasn't really just strictly a neighborhood. It was right adjacent to a field. But at any rate, you'd hear the coyotes. Um, you'd hear the coyotes every night. Um, and then, uh, once in a great while you'd see them and they just kind of glide, you know, just kind of silently glide. And like I say, almost like it goes, especially if there's snow out there. Um, as far as humans, I've never heard of anybody having any trouble because they won't let you get close to them and they're survivors too. They're hard to kill. Um, I just saw a deal on. I was watching Mountain Man, and uh, um, and probably my favorite character on there, Tom Moore, was trapping coyotes. That's a, that's a good show, and yeah, they've just been around some of our, our newer developed neighborhoods. Mike Leach with us, Hale Varsity. Right? I think those coyotes are going to stay there after they develop. You know, they, yeah. they when I when I was going to law school, and same thing is now, I'm sure. You know, those coyotes are all over the Hollywood Hills. And, yeah. you know, somebody would have a kitten or a little dog, and now all of a sudden they don't, you know. And, um, but, uh, uh, and there's a couple cougars up there, too. Um, but, uh, no, I, they're, I think they're about everywhere. And, and, um, but they, you know, they're real quick to run, and, and it's probably in their best interest because they, do a good job of surviving. Mike Leach with us. Coach, we'll talk again soon, and it's awesome to get caught up with you. Thanks again. All right. Well, great talking to you, and uh, good to hear from you. Early to rise with Hale Varsity Radio, the voice of Husker Nation. Here's Chris Schmidt and Mark Cranach. Great to have you in on Hale Varsity Radio, a best of edition. We'll start things off with Colorado coach and Hall of Famer Bill McCartney from a couple years back. Thanks for a few minutes, and I want to start off with just what it means for you to get into the College Football Hall of Fame. You did great things at Colorado, but you retired. And uh, was it a little discouraging f- to wait that long to get in? 
Uh, not really. You know, um, I guess I never really believed the dream. <laughs> keep in mind, I'm a little different in the sense that when I was seven years old, I'm 72 now. Mm -hmm. When I was seven years old, I knew I was going to be a coach. Okay. Now, I know that some guys are going to be president and some guys are going to be governors. and But I, all I ever wanted to be was a coach. So from the earliest that I can remember, I used to study my coaches. I used to critique them. And then, uh, you know, around the my, – my favorite coach, you know who it was? Adolph Rupp. From Kentucky, right? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, he's been gone a long time, so that tells you something. But Bobby Knight, I traveled around, and, and, and I was a student. When he was at Army, I was following him before he ever went to Indiana. And then I played for a guy by the name of Dan Devine at Missouri, and he was very successful, and I had the good fortune to be with Bo Schembechler at Michigan for eight and a half years. So I was around some good guys. Yeah, Coach, I wanted to kind of go into just your time at Michigan and coaching under Bo Schembechler and just the things that you were able to kind of take away from, uh, obviously, a great coach in his own right and to be able to apply that at a very successful career at Colorado. What, what was main, some of the main things that you were able to learn under Coach Schembechler? You know, you know, uh, he really learned from Woody Hayes, and uh, he was an assistant of Woody's prior to coaching against him. And... Um, Bo was the kind of guy, he had great attention to detail. He, did, he didn't overlook anything. But when I was most amazed and fascinated by him is uh, after practice on Thursday, the game's on Saturday, practice over on Thursday, and Thursday was just a light practice. And then he would have the players go ahead and get showered, and then they would come into a meeting, and this meeting would be about a half-hour meeting before they went to dinner, and this is when he would give the pregame speech. You know, a lot of guys think of a pregame speech as being in the locker room before the game. His was Thursday night. And I mean, I used to take notes. It was fascinating. It was incredible. And he would say, okay, men, here's how we're going to win this game. And he would go into great detail on how if we brought it all, that, you know, we could get victory. And so I, I followed that pattern uh, during the years that I was a head coach and learned a lot from Poe. Bill McCartney, College Football Hall of Famer with us, Hale Varsity Radio. You get to Colorado in 82, Coach, and in your third year, you take a step back and just win one game. Your 80 loves the direction you're going. You get a contract extension. You also made Nebraska your focal point. Talk about the Nebraska-Colorado rivalry and building a program that came from seven wins before you got there to a national title in 1990. Well, you know, Keep in mind that, like I mentioned, that Michigan and Ohio State would play last every right. year. Yeah. And so leading up to it, it didn't matter how well we played, Bo would say, we're not ready yet, men. We're not ready for the Buckeyes. We've got to get better. And so I, I, was, it was, I was there eight and a half years, so much a part of that. So when I came to Colorado, I said, who's our rival? Who's the team we have to beat? 
And nobody knew. Everybody said, well, we got to beat everybody. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. Who is it? We have to beat. And so I chose Nebraska. And the reason that I chose them is they're a neighboring state. And back then, Oklahoma and Nebraska were two of the top five teams in the country. Yep. And so they were in our conference, obviously. And so we, we on the calendar, when we would post a schedule for the next season, we put every game in black letters and one game in letters and it was always nebraska and so we just you achieve what you emphasize if you want something bad enough and you target it and you put your whole heart into it you so here's what we had to do we had to beat them off the field before we could beat them on the field we had to out recruit them and so i would say to our coaches don't bring me anybody on this campus that nebraska doesn't want i want the same guys they want and we got we got to talk them in the, you know in all honesty boulder has a lot of different appeal than lincoln does lincoln's a big city you can't even get across it on a bicycle boulder you can go from one end of the campus on foot in 10 minutes so well, you know we we just learned how to sell boulder over lincoln and I guess when you when you look at the the early challenges that you had at Colorado, what what were some of the what were what was some of the I guess the main resistance or the main challenges that you faced uh, when you got on campus there? Indifference, apathy. They they didn't love football like they do in some places. We only had seventy three guys on scholarship. We were entitled to ninety five. Wow! Think about that. Uh, it was apathetic. It just wasn't as as good a football guy as Chuck Fairbanks is. He half of his squad that he recruited the year before I got there were junior college kids. In other words, they were looking for a quick fix instead of getting the kid. You know what you have to do the the between the ages of 18 and 22, those are the formative years. That's when a boy becomes a man. That's when a boy leaves home and learns what it is to take responsibility. Right. So you want them when they're freshmen. You want to speak into them. You want to cultivate them. You want to bring them along. And so it took a while to do that. Uh, you know, keep in mind, I got hired June 10th, 1982. Okay, Chuck Fairbanks resigned June 1st, 1982 to go coach the New Jersey Generals in the old USFL. And so I didn't even recruit my first freshman class. But the first freshman class that we did recruit in 1983, we took 16 in-state kids. Think about that, because Colorado doesn't produce that many in-state kids, but we convinced the kid at home that it was their program and that they were going to be instrumental in rebuilding it. And what happened is they, they were not a, there weren't a lot of great players, but they were great kids. And from that time on, when we recruited, they had great character, great appeal to them, and they helped us recruit some of the great classes that followed you know, and when you when you guys begin the successful trend that you start, I guess where did where did it start? Was there a certain player, a certain moment, anything that you can kind of point to when really things started swinging towards your favor, or was it just kind of a process that finally was embraced by the guys you guys were rec recruiting? Well, maybe look at it this way: there's a principle in construction. 
the higher you want to build, the deeper you have to dig. If you want a skyscraper, you got to go. You got to go deeper. So you have to surround yourself with coaches and players who have character, who are guys that you can trust, who are guys that are not going to bail on you. And quite frankly, it's not the junior college player. With all due respect to the junior college player, by and large, there's a reason why he didn't go to a four-year school when he came out. So, you know, if you get the right coaches and everybody gets on the same page, all bets are off. And that's what we were able to do. We were able to put together a good coaching staff. Keep in mind, here's something people don't talk about, don't think about, but it's very uh, much a concern. When you've never been a head coach, like I had never been a head coach in the college level, and I got hired at Colorado, I have to put a coaching staff together for the first time. That's not easy to do. In other words, how do you go out and get the top caliber assistant coach to come? And when you've never done it before, it's an imperfect science. So what happened with me is I made some mistakes. And I, I ended up hiring some guys that I had to release in order to surround myself. See, everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything does. Every home, every business, every church, everything rides. You show me strong leadership and I'll show you something that will stand the test of time. And that's what we had to do. And, it, and it, it's, it's not easy to do. And I had to learn how to do that. But being under Schimbeckler, I knew what it looked like. I just had to step into it and grow into it. Bill McCartney, College Football Hall of Famer, with us talking his program at Colorado. He took from nothing. They won a title in 1990, nearly 100 career wins. Coach, you mentioned the the assistants you had, Gary Barnett, Jerry DiNardo, Carl Durrell, Jim Caldwell, who's with Indianapolis, Les Miles, Rick Neuheisel, Bob Simmons, guys that went on to their, their own jobs and very, very successful. Those guys, a lot of those guys were on staff with you. When you won it all in 1990, you, you got the uh, the AP poll, the championship, a 10-1-1 season. You beat Notre Dame. Talk about that 1990 season. Boy, you just did a really good job there of, of bringing back some names of guys who all went on and became head coaches. And what? You know, just yeah. real quickly, DiNardo uh, went to Vanderbilt. Lou Tepper went to Illinois. Gary Barnett went to Northwestern. Ron Vanderlinden went to Maryland. Bob Simmons went to Oklahoma State. Rick Neuheiser went on to Washington, UCLA. Carl Durrell, UCLA. Jim Caldwell, North Carolina. Ron Dickerson, Temple. Those guys uh, were, they, they did the work, you know. <laughs> they, they really were instrumental in whatever success we had, in, and that's what helped us build it. But, but you know, the, the truth is, is that uh, Eddie Crowder and guys before him had done a great job of building a tradition at Colorado. And so Colorado is a football school. It has a football mentality. They're doing well in basketball right now, which I'm really happy for them. But, but you know, it's like the Broncos in Denver. They love the Broncos in Colorado. I mean, I mean, they love them with a passion. And you can tap into that as a college coach. You can draw from that. And we tried to do that. 
Coach, we got to get a, a memorable CU Nebraska moment that you can remember. So many great matchups. Uh, I know some very big wins for you guys. What is is there one game that really sticks out to you uh, when you look back at that rivalry? Well, there is, and we were playing um, at Nebraska. And we had a good team, and I mean, we we went in there, and we were not an underdog, and both teams were particularly strong that year, and um, we had done everything we could to prepare, and yet we come in, we go in at halftime, and we're behind 13 to nothing, and I'll never forget this. You know, generally speaking, when you haven't scored in the first half and you're on the road and you're trailing by a couple of touchdowns, you got work to do. I go in the locker room and before I can say anything, some of my older guys get up in front of the team. And I'm talking about with fire in their eyes, with tremendous passion in their hearts. They are talking to the younger guys in the team and said, this is what's going to happen in the second half. I swear to you, I didn't have to say a word. When I, I just listened myself. I mean, they got me more fired up. <laughs> and we went out in the second half and scored 27 fourth quarter points and won at the link, in Lincoln for the first time in 26 years. So it, it was, it was lead, you know, everything rises and falls on leadership. And we had built a culture and we had the caliber of competitor that when we were backed up and things weren't going well, they took over. Bill McCartney, Hall of Famer, former coach at Colorado. That 1990 win in Lincoln uh, was in the front row south end zone. Yes, I remember the, the 27 you touch on in the fourth quarter. It was raining, too. Yeah, oh, it was so cold. But, yeah, that was a vintage. That was a 1990 championship team. Coach, before we let you go, your decision to retire in 1994, a few years prior to that, you had started Promise Keepers Men's Ministry and have done such a fabulous job with that. Talk about your decision before we say goodbye to start out, to, to start Promise Keepers and then get out of college football when you did. Well, here's what happened. Um, it's in the season. It's early in the year. We're undefeated. And our pastor in our church, we, we win on Saturday. And on Sunday, the pastor in our church the previous week has said, we got a visiting preacher next week. He's been preaching for 45 years. He's been all over the world, and he's coming with the single most important thing that he's learned in 45 years of preaching. And I remember thinking, what could that be? Well, the next week, this guy comes in from out of town. His name is Jack Taylor. I never met him before or since. And he says, you want to know about a man? You want to know whether a man has character or not? All you need to do is look in his wife's countenance because everything that he's invested or withheld will be in her face. And he said, Almighty God has mandated that every man bring his wife to splendor in Jesus Christ. I turned and I looked at Lindy. We had been married 30-some years. I didn't see splendor. I saw torment. I didn't see contentment. I saw anguish. And I went, oh, my gosh. You know? That's why I resigned. I resigned and I vowed that I would do everything that I could to lay down my life for my wife. And uh, you probably guys probably know this, but six weeks ago she passed. And so I don't regret getting out of coaching. But you know what happened? Nine years later, after I resigned, I got a Valentine's card 
And it said, I finally found the man I thought I married. So it took me a long time to learn to die to myself and put her first. Bill McCartney, Hall of Famer, college football, great coach at Colorado, great man off the field with Promise Keepers coach. Best to you. Thanks for a few minutes. I'd love to catch up again. Thank you kindly. Take care. Bill McCartney with us. Hail Varsity Radio. City Radio, presented by the Nebraska Lottery, with Chris Schmidt and Mark Cranach. Back with you, Hale Varsity Radio, Hale Varsity Magazine. The best of Hale Varsity continues, and we have to include one of our favorites. That is Clausburn. He's imaginary. He wears red, and he participated in a spelling bee, the first annual Hale Varsity Spelling Bee. Jay Moore, TJ Henning, myself, we were all judges. Brandon Vogel, one of the smartest dudes around. Of Hale Varsity versus Clausburn. Enjoy. Uh, so Jay Moore is a judge in the first annual Hale Varsity Spelling Bee, as is TJ Henning, as am I. And we welcome in Brandon L. Vogel of HaleVarsity.com and Magazine. Vogues, uh, what are your credentials again? Uh, my credentials are that I, I placed in some Boxy County Spelling Bee that I can no longer remember, but it was eh, probably second, third, fourth grade, somewhere around there. That uh, was impressive. Clausburn, how are you, sir? Well, I'm doing okay. I feel a little ambushed, but as long as we don't have more than two syllables, I I suppose I'll be okay. Okay, that'll work. And you're not ambushed. Clausburn, you're you're pretty bright. You're well-read, aren't you? Well, I do come from a family of learned doctors. There we go. We have a little music here. Okay, the first word goes to Brandon L. Vogel. Football. Football. Country of origin, please. America. <laughs> okay. Football. F-O-O-T-B-A-L-L. Football. Judges. That's correct. Okay, good work. Uh, Cla- I'd like to raise a point of contention. The country of origin for football is America. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Try to pronounce it correctly so there's no confusion. Thank you, Clausburn. Clausburn Fumble Ruski. Okay. Uh, can you use it in a sentence? Uh, Dean Steinkuhler scored on a Fumble Ruski in the 84 Orange Bowl. Will Shields ran it against Colorado in 1992. Fumble Ruski. F U. <laughs> R O O S K I. That is that is correct. Well correct. All right. Well done. Ah, uh, Vogel, Switzer, Switzer. Okay, um, let's see. S W I T Z E R. That's correct. That is, that is correct. Okay. Glasburn, uh, Missouri. Somehow I knew this was going to come up, and I would have been disappointed had it not. <laughs> M I. Let's see, now I'm confused. Does it go Z or S? 
Let me start again. M I S S O U R A. Missouri. <laughs> We're going to take that. We'll take that that sounds good. That. that sounds good. It's two to two. Okay. Um, <laughs> Vogues, this is tough. Punt. I'll do my best. Punt. Punt? I can't punt this one. I got to take it? Yes. All right. Punt. P-U-N-T. Punt. Any more brain busters? <laughs> All right. Uh, Clausburn. Kamani Fred. Um, K-H-I- M A N I. No. Clausburn. Of course. Well, no one watches basketball. What are you talking about? Kamani Friend is spelled K I M A N I. Friend F F R I E N D. One strike. I got the first name right. That's close enough. Clausburn. Don't argue with hey, me. Hey, Pete. Hey. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Vogues? Dad gummit. <laughs> okay. Vogues, Riola. Riola. <sighs> I'm interested in the country of origin for this one as well, but I'll just I'll just go. America. R- Hawaii. A- yeah, let me keep the fiction. All right. R A I O L I A. Oh, vote! So close. R A I O L A. So we each have a strike here. It's okay. Though. I believe Riola is also an affordable family sedan from Japan, so just trying to. <clears throat> <laughs> wow. Clausburn, you're up. Okay. Gonorrhea. C A R L. Is that wrong? <laughs> that is incorrect. Oh. <laughs> Two strikes. (laughs) Two strikes. (laughs) Uh, Vogues. uh, Spell flag. Flag. Okay. F L A G. Flag. That is correct. Clausburn. You need to get this to keep it. Keep it rolling here. Are you okay? Uh, I'm okay. Okay. Tony Finotti. You give him all the easy ones. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And I really don't think you need any more letters than that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
T-O-N-I-U. Uh, <laughs> Ooh. Correct on the first part. F-O-N-O-T-I. You got it. We are tied. We are out of time. We are going to hold this over for the next segment. Each will have one word. One word left. Sudden death. Clausburn, I'm impressed. You got Tonyu Finotti correct. In votes? I, have, I blacked out. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Well played. And, man, I, Clausburn missed on Kamani Friend. And Vogues, you missed on... Rayola. Rayola. And Clausburn, we're going to leave the, the Carl one alone. Early to rise with Hale Varsity Radio, the voice of Husker Nation. Here's Chris Schmidt and Mark Craig. The best of Hale Varsity Radio wraps with Jordan Burroughs. Jordan, I want to go back to your childhood. Of what was the inspiration and the motivation to get you involved and to really get that fire burning for wrestling at such a young age? You know, it's interesting because no one in my family ever wrestled, and I was the first and only child and uh, just member of the Burroughs family to actually strap up some wrestling shoes and step onto the mat. And so when I did it, I enjoyed it right away because I was one of the smallest kids in my neighborhood growing up. I was the youngest of four in my family. I was kind of the run of the family, and it was a sport where you didn't have to be relatively big and to excel. And so I was successful right away, and I really loved the sport. And the biggest motivation for me was WWF. I really loved watching the WWF when I was a kid. Um, and so I'm like, man, if this is what wrestling is all about, sign me up, I'm in. And got to my first wrestling practice, realized that it was a little bit different. It weren't people getting hit with chairs and thrown out of the ring and things like that. But it was still a great event, and it was really fun. Got to do a lot of travel and meet some good lifelong friends early in the sport, and uh, I've stuck with it ever since. Jordan Burroughs, a few minutes with us. Hale Varsity Radio, part of the State Games of America in Nebraska this year, Omaha and Lincoln. And uh, log on for registration, SGA2015.com. Jordan, I want to go to, to, the, to the wrestling fandom. Who was your wrestler growing up? Who did you love in the WWF, WWE? And who was your kind of your, your guilty pleasure from a villain standpoint? Uh, let's see. When I was growing up, I really liked the Ultimate Warrior. Good call. The Ultimate Warrior and Macho Man Randy Savage were my, my two favorites. As kids, I had a little action figure, the Ultimate Warrior, and then I had, I used to like put rubber bands around my biceps because I wanted to be like the Ultimate Warrior growing up. And then I had a, a rock, Macho Man Randy Savage pillow that I had with me as a kid. Um, and I'd say one of my favorite villains was, I, I like The Undertaker. I always thought he was cool, just his entrance and, and the way he would scare people, and he would always come out with his buddy Paul Bear and uh, his brother Kane and it was it was interesting to see those guys in the persona they you know portrayed into into the wrestling world but those were some of my favorite guys growing up and I really love the sport now as I get older I realize that it's more of a show but when I was a kid you couldn't convince me that it wasn't real well that made the inspiration but you obviously excelled on, on the mats uh, not in the WWF ring but uh, <laughs> what uh, eventually brought you to Lincoln? I mean, there's a lot of great wrestling schools out there. One of them is Nebraska, obviously, but what was the final decision and what made you choose Lincoln over everybody else? 
I actually had a buddy of mine who was a college teammate and a high school teammate as well. His name was Vince Jones. He was an All-American at 184 pounds in 2009. And we were high school teammates. We started wrestling in our same youth program back in New Jersey, and we were actually next door neighbors, believe it or not. And so he was a year older. He chose to come to Nebraska a year before me, and we really wanted to wrestle together again. And so he uh, kind of put in a good word with the coaching staff here at Nebraska, told them about myself, and they came back to recruit me, and um, I was successful at my junior and senior year of high school, I was a state runner-up as a junior, state champion as a senior, also a senior national champion. So they were like, man, this kid's pretty good. Maybe we will take you up on that offer. And so they came back, recruited me. I came here for a visit, loved it right away. I thought the facilities were awesome. The coaching staff was great. The city of Lincoln was a cool place to be, and uh, the rest is history. So I really loved it right away. This was actually the only visit I took out of all of my entire recruiting process as a senior in high school. This was the only visit I took and I signed a couple weeks later. 